Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello and welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And this week we are going to talk about why we need to build more bloody houses. Finally, we're at the housing yeah. episode. <laughs> yeah, we've been, I've been threatening this for a while. I imagine there's been people who've been listening to this every time and like been sad. It's like, oh, they're talking about mares again or the bloody tube. Because they, just, they really want to talk about land use policies, mm. is what they're actually into. But we'll come on to that. This might be my last chance, because as we record this, it's your last day at the New Statesman. It is my last day at the New Statesman. Hopefully which not... Which is rubbish. <laughs> which is completely rubbish. But you know, I, I hope you know that. Can but... we just talk about how cursed okay. this role of podcast co-host is with you? Yeah, I have noticed this. James Ball from BuzzFeed on Twitter very helpfully described it as the Defence Against the Dark Arts teaching post <laughs> of the New Statesman. <laughs> Which is, I mean, I am starting to wonder if it's me, but, you know. No, no, it's not, no. No, of course not, John, no. When I edit this, I'm going to cut out the long silence there, <laughs> so so that it sounds like you're being sincere. Anyway. But you are, finally, because I actually, you know, truth be told, guys, I've never heard John talk that much about housing, and that is not for want of trying on John's part. This is because I... It's because you can run quite fast. I run quite fast and also I'm quite shouty when you try and explain things to me. Yeah. But, you know, since... Hopefully I'll be coming back for some more of these episodes, but since this is my last day in the office, as my parting gift to you, John, why is there a housing crisis? Well, it's complicated, isn't it? Okay, okay. I regret this already. Go on, go on. Start from the top. There's also, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. But the bottom line is we've not built enough housing to keep up with demand. And that's partly because there's, the population is growing quite fast. We're on course to be the biggest country in Europe by, I think it's 2050, possibly even before. And, you know, beyond that, there's also the sort of economic divisions that have grown in the country mean that people are kind of gradually draining to the southeast where, where there are jobs. So it's been difficult to keep up with demand for all those people who want homes in that part of the country. And part of the reason for that is because we place a lot of artificial restrictions on where we can build in this country and have done since the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act, 
which was at the time an incredibly progressive bit of legislation, which was all about sort of taking the the benefits of growth and sort of clawing some of the some of the increase in land prices back, so you could invest it in things like you know infrastructure and the public good and so on. And another part of it was all these things like green belts to make sure that we weren't just sort of concreting the countryside. And that's been whittled away over the past 70 years. So we've ended up with the restrictions on where we can build. But we've lost all the bits about how increases in land values should go to the public good as opposed to private profit. So we've now got a situation in which nobody can build anything. And when you do build things on the rare occasions, then the money goes to the speculative developers rather than the community. So that, that's the very short version, but basically we're stuffed. So what's the most ridiculous, because I know you have, this is the full extent to which I've listened to you talk about this previously, you've been out to places on the green belt or kind of brownfield land further out. What's the most ridiculous bit of legislation or most ridiculous story of houses not being built there is i'm slightly obsessed with this potato farm have i told you about the potato farm <laughs> i don't think you have told me about the potato farm okay this potato farm is in it's near where i grew up it's between ilford and romford which is zone four it's very near the central I, I'm you, quite, you can't was, see my face but <laughs> yeah that was quite pleasing actually like you because you because you were like yeah we'll oh, talk about housing but that was a genuinely shocked look i got there yeah and it's on the a12 which is a major trunk road into london it's very close to several central line stations including in like fairlop and uh and barkingside it's going to be quite close to crossrail where we're spending quite a lot of money on building this new uh, tunnel under london it'll be quite close to like chabal heath station but we can't build on it because it's greenbelt. So instead, we're using this land about eight or nine miles from central London, which has residential areas to the east and south and west of it. But because it's greenbelt, even though it's got great transport links, we can't touch it. And if anybody sort of proposed, hey, guys, why, don't we, why are we growing potatoes here? Why don't we build some houses? Then there would be an absolute Ferrari. That's, I mean, I really, really, really like potatoes, and I think that sounds ludicrous. I mean, potatoes are good. I don't know if... But you know what's better than potatoes? Housing. Affordable housing. Yeah. yeah. But it's, I mean, the difficulty is, I, I sometimes sort of end up parodying myself as somebody who wants to concrete the countryside, and that's not actually <laughs> true. Like, the alternative to having no planning restrictions at all is you end up like Houston, Texas, which goes on forever. Uh, and and you have to drive everywhere, and that's terrible. Cities aren't good like that. It's just I kind of think like it's not 1947 anymore. And actually, there is some greenbelt land we should definitely protect. We shouldn't be building on the North Downs. We shouldn't be building on the Chilterns if we can avoid it. But a lot of this kind of scrubby industrial land or agricultural land within the M25, you know, with good transport links, we're in the middle of the housing crisis. Of course, we should be looking at which bits are still worth protecting and which bits we should be building on, right? I mean, that doesn't seem crazy to me. Are there other things we could also be doing? Because I I think when a lot of people think about the housing crisis, particularly within the M25, you immediately think of kind of empty flats in Mayfair. Can we not just kind of tax people to the eyeballs if they're not living in their homes and things like that? We we can, that might help at the margin, but the these are the cash boxes in the sky narrative is, I don't want to say it's not a real problem, but it's not a huge problem. Like, we're talking tens of thousands. And, you know, for the for the most part, if somebody spends a million pounds on, on a London flat, that's a lot of money. They want to sweat that asset. So even if they're not living it, they will probably rent it out. 
there's I mean there's a few, there's there's a few thousand empty homes, but it's really not going to make a dent. We need to be building like fifty or sixty thousand new homes a year in London to get anywhere close to dealing with this, and we're we're about eighteen, twenty, twenty five at the moment, I think. So you know those those empty flats, it's not going to make that much difference. Ultimately, the problem we've got is a it's a physical space crisis because we just don't have the land to build on and because of these artificial restrictions. If you just think in the purely sort of physical sense, we either need to make London bigger, which means building out, or we need to make it taller, which means knocking stuff down and building it again higher. And and the kind of the, the relatively, you know, it wasn't pain free at all, but the solution the, the Cameron government settled on for a while was basically redeveloping council estates on the grounds that, you know, here is some land the public sector already owns. Often it's actually not that densely populated. We could we could do get more people on there. And often also they're not very attractive areas. Some of them have failed. There are sink estates there. So so yeah, they thought, well why don't we just demolish some of this stuff and rebuild like, you know, like Parisian mansion blocks kind of thing. And this was the Cameron government's idea. Also Andrew Donis, the former Labour London minister, pushed this one. And it's not that it's a terrible idea. It's just I kind of always get the impression they've forgotten that people actually live in these places. I feel this a lot, particularly... I know there's always kind of, again, stories that are outliers, but people coming in and going, here's where they've circumvented the restrictions on how small you can make a flat. You know, would you live in this studio where you can fry an egg and also wash your hands from bed? And my worry is, of course, that you have to remember a human is going to be in it at the end of the day i mean i think there is a fundamental problem that the everyone here is 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 responding to the signals that have been given by the market so like developers are doing small flats because it's quite difficult to get land and because there actually isn't a huge premium on doing bigger flats but i don't think for the most part these guys are living in their own their own developments because you know if you can get somewhere bigger or nicer you generally would. Like there's a company called Pocket. You come across them? No, I haven't. They do teeny tiny homes. It's something like forty square feet for a sorry, not forty, four hundred square feet, forty square feet. I was say. That's a room. That's but yeah. That's like, this room. Yeah, and you know, it's like, and they're not terrible value. I mean, I mean listen, no, sorry, they're not terribly expensive. Like I went round, I looked one round one in in South London, they own sort of Lambeth Way, and I think it was a sort of two hundred and seventy, two hundred eighty thousand. And it's a little one bed flat, and you know you could you can imagine living in there, but you're kind of thinking for for nearly three hundred grand is this is this all I get? yeah, no, it's true, and especially I don't know if you ever do this, but in my darker moments of London life, I'll kind of go on right move and type in Salford and look at the beautiful huge flats that you can buy for a tiny well, if, property in London if the guardian goes through with its uh if the the rumours that it's threatening to move to Manchester, back to Manchester, if that were to happen, then that actually becomes a realistic possibility, doesn't it? I mean, there's enough gorgeous empty flats in Deansgate already that, you know, I keep I keep I keep an eye on there. Well, um, yeah, they'd need to move Parliament as well, of course. I mean, I think they should do that too. I I actually think this is part of the solution to a lot of our crises is to move the move the government out of. London, like for a while, I was suggesting Bradford because there was a rather nice big site in the middle of it. But they actually the, the recession passed and they built a shopping centre on it. But I think Manchester is is plausible. I think if we move the capital to Manchester, then it would make the country less London centric for obvious reasons. 
it would mean like a whole bunch of ancillary industries would also move to Manchester. Like, you know, the media, a large chunk of the media would go, but also stuff like, you know, public affairs and various professional services and so on. And I think London would, London would be fine. I don't think London's economy would, would take that big a hit. I mean, you don't know what will happen in terms of Brexit, because obviously the part of the thing that makes London so re- resilient is that you have the city here, it's an international hub, so we'll kind of see what happens with passporting. Um, I mean, I think London would be fine. I don't think London would continue to be as robust as London has been in terms of its national and international stature. Um, but, but if you look at the US, like New York has not suffered from not being the capital. No, but New York, New York has a robust banking sector that trades in ways that London will not be able to Yeah, I mean, this is, but, but this is because Brexit is a really terrible idea that we obviously shouldn't be doing. Yeah, no, I mean... It's an act of massive national self-harm that we shouldn't shouldn't do. I mean, yeah, if you want to make our financial sector less competitive, I can't think of anything better you could do right now than leave the European Union, especially since you have Dublin, which will be in the EU, which also has an international airport, which has better tax legislation and is also English-speaking, you know, just over the Irish Sea. Yeah. But I'm sure it'll be fine. Anyway. Everything's going to be fine. So you would move things to Manchester? Oh, yeah, I mean, like, I'm slightly... I mean, all my, my family is down here and I might have to move to Manchester and that would not be ideal. But, you know, from a non-selfish point of view, I think it's it's definitely the right move for the, the country. I think, like, the idea that it, the capital has to be London because it always has been since, like, the 10th century, whenever it is, is, is ridiculous, I think. I mean, London wouldn't fail. But no. do we really need all of those journos to camping in Manchester? It's a really nice city right now. You should probably speak to the Guardian about that. I'll give them a ring. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Anyway, as I was explaining, uh, a very exciting length, a large chunk of the housing crisis is actually a land crisis. And as it turns out, we don't know who owns quite a lot of the land in this country. 
I'm Catherine Banks. I'm the Assistant Policy Officer at Shelter and I work on our housing supply work, looking at why we're not building the homes that we need. And you've been doing some very exciting work on land data transparency. I have indeed. Tell us about land data transparency. Well, in our work looking at how we solve the housing crisis, how we make sure that we have the homes that people need to live in, in recent years we've looked a lot at the kind of why we're not building enough homes. And one of the major barriers we've identified is that it's actually just incredibly difficult to access and get hold of sites to build on in the first place. Information on ownership of land is held at the land registry, but it costs £3 a pop to search for titles and access uh, kind of who owns them. It's also very difficult to understand, to kind of get information often on who actually controls that land in terms of if a company's listed as owning it, who controls that company, if there's kind of restrictions on its use. It can just be really difficult. It takes a lot of upfront resource um, that a lot of kind of smaller builders particularly just don't have. The, the, the one sort of financial amount in, in there was three pounds mm-hmm. ago. And, you know, three pounds is that's that's the price of an expensive coffee. That's not a crazy amount of money. So why why is this a problem? I mean, is your value three pounds is not much. It's not a lot when you're just looking at one place, uh, one specific site. But until you start searching, you don't know necessarily. So say you've chosen a field that you want to look at. You don't know until you start searching whether that plot is covered in one title or whether actually it's maybe broken up into smaller kind of multiple titles two or three which starts to kind of amp up your costs you also don't necessarily know exactly what location the place that you're looking at corresponds to as a title so you have to kind of buy a couple of things and also ultimately you might kind of find who owns the plot that you're looking at and it's just not going to work for house building so you have to look elsewhere so although it's a small amount in isolation if you're just interested in kind of who owns a land in your town or in your area and you can kind of find it quite easily and it's a three pound one-off payment that's one thing but when you're looking for kind of sites across a much wider area and you're trying to find um, kind of multiple pieces of information about it it quickly adds up and can really start to become a barrier. So it's not £3 to get the information, it's £3 for a fishing trip, basically. Mm, Effectively, yeah. It's £3 for a search, and then once you've performed that search, it's £3 for the kind of ownership information um, and the boundary information. And you don't know what you're getting into until you've already started. I mean, shouldn't, for example, the local council have all the data you need on who owns the land on their patch? The local council do have a lot of information in terms of they'll have information on planning applications and planning consents. And obviously through submitting planning applications, they'll have information on either who that the owner of that site is or who's acting for them is. But they don't necessarily hold the information on all of the land within their area. Land is only registered when it's transacted if things haven't been transacted in a long time um, or if they haven't been transacted since the establishment of the land registry, they won't necessarily have that information. And if nobody ever, if people are perfectly content with the bit of land that they've got and they never submit an application to do anything to it, again, the council won't necessarily ever need 
or find out who owns it. So hang on, am I hearing this right? Even the land registry doesn't have a complete registration of all the land? No, not yet, because land is only required to be registered when it's transacted. The land registry was set up over 100 years ago, but quite some land across the country hasn't been registered yet because it hasn't changed hands in that time. It's stayed owned by the same people, whether that's the public sector or the church or whether it's aristocratic estates. If it's not been sold since the land registry was established, there's nothing compelling people to register it if they don't want to. So how much how much is left to be registered? It's somewhere between sort of ten and twenty percent, I think, is still left to be registered. Wow. Um okay. yeah, so it's it's quite a substantial substantial amount. And it is one of the goals of the land registry to kind of get complete registration of all land. But as I say, at the moment, there's nothing compelling people to register it if they don't want to. It's a good safeguard against fraud. It stops people turning up and saying, oh, I own this, if you've already registered it in your name. But there's nothing forcing people to if they don't want to. If if there is any group of people in the world that would get excited by a phrase like land data transparency, it's going to be the listeners to this podcast. But nonetheless, <laughs> it's not it's not the sexiest phrase you've ever heard, is it? I mean, why why should we care about this? We should care about it because although it's not the one thing that would solve the housing crisis, it is a barrier that we see time and time again when we're looking at why we're not building enough homes. It's not being able to access land to build on, not being able to understand where it is and whether it could become available. It really is one of the kind of barriers that we see. And so although it wouldn't be the entirety of solving the housing crisis to make land data more transparent, it would be a significant step forward and it would really help to allow smaller builders to break into the into the sector. It would help local authorities to plan more proactively instead of just kind of working with the sites that are brought to them. They could kind of plan more strategically across the whole area. And it's good just for ordinary people, both in terms of understanding who owns and controls land in their area, but also in kind of in their own sort of moving house. It makes it better for them if they can understand kind of who controls the land that they're looking at to buy a house on. So if, if we did have a sort of full database of all this stuff, what would get better? Why, why, why would it be easier for, for a smaller builder? Well, what we would like to see is certainly something quite similar to Greater Manchester have made great strides in this recently. They've coordinated mapping across the entire combined authority area. They've got a map showing their kind of um, future housing land supply and they've also got a map that shows a lot of their infrastructure and utilities information, their brownfield, their greenbelt. It shows all sorts of things and that's really helpful in terms of assessing the kind of viability of a development site. I've heard stories in the past of house builders that have acquired sites and found them and then it's only once they already own the site and have got applied for planning permission on it they discover that there's a gas pipe running underneath it or a massive electricity cable supplying kind of half of a town's electricity and they don't know that before they build it because that information is just not held together. It seems crazy to me that like particularly I mean just coming back to the council thing the idea that the council can't plan like comprehensively for its patch because it just doesn't know what's there or who owns it seems insane and the other issue is that even once you can find out who owns it you don't necessarily know who controls it in terms of often there'll be option agreements on a piece of developable land which don't necessarily have to be registered but they give the person who's taken out the option 
it's basically agreeing a price that they would pay for it if they wanted to buy the land in the future. It's an it's a kind of exclusivity agreement that gives them the security that they need to kind of... So if a house builder approaches and takes out an option agreement on a site, they agree it with the landowner, they give some money up front to the landowner, and then that gives them a bit of security in terms of spending the money on seeing if they could get planning consent for it. It gives them security, but it's not necessarily registered and it also precludes anybody else from then buying that land so that's another big barrier for local authorities is that even if they know who owns the land they don't necessarily know who controls it so it can be quite difficult and that's another one of the things that we would call for a lot of the kind of transparency stuff that we're interested in is information that already exists it's already out there it's already registered in terms of ownership or information that's held by local authorities what we'd like to see is it brought together in the case of option agreements we'd like to see them made compulsory to register as well um, because it's no use knowing who owns the site if you don't know who else has an interest in it a controlling interest in it okay one last question you know one of the things you come across again and again in conversations about the housing crisis is basically oh well we're just we're just full we don't have anyone else to build We're, we're full go away so do we have do we have enough land? Is is it possible that maybe we just don't have anywhere left to build? I'm 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 not I'm not I'm going high pitch because I'm not very convinced of this. But can you come in your own words, do we have enough land? I'm also not convinced of the argument that there's nowhere left to build. Um there's of course areas of the country that are incredibly built up. Um cities are very built up, obviously, um a lot of towns as well, and it can seem kind of just in day-to-day life that everything's full and you can't see anywhere where you could possibly put any more houses in. However, even when you take into account the land that's not available in terms of land that's protected for its kind of environmental value, when you take into account greenbelt land, when you take into account agricultural land, there's still a vast amount of land in this country that is available and we could build the homes we need on. I think it's less than 10% of the country is built on at the moment so there's still a huge amount of land even taking into consideration the land that we've quite rightly protected for other uses um, there's still plenty of space okay so let's get building well yes because every day um, at shelter we hear from people who just don't think that they're ever going to be able to access a secure and affordable home of their own and you know that's the real tragedy of it and that's why this matters and that's why the government really needs to look at making improvements in this area So obviously part of the problem with a housing crisis, particularly if you are young people or people who do not have a huge amount of disposable income, is that your options with regards to what you can rent or buy can be limited, to put it delicately. Or non-existent. Yeah. So in order to, in a very unscientific way, (laughs) get a sense of some of these problems, we asked you for your worst housing horror story. Okay, I'm going to go straight and steal the best one, and you can't stop me. But um, Ella Risbridger said, My mum's house in Kilburn, where the landlord stashed so many stolen fridges in the bathroom that the floor collapsed into the kitchen. This is before I was born. She no longer lives in a house of stolen goods and no floor. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to jump right in and say, great story from Ella, not the best story. Have you seen the one about the frog yet? I've not seen the one about the frog. Tell me the one of the frog. This is long-term friend of the podcast, Angry Sai, says that her aunt's house used to have a frog that lived in the toilet. Her two aunts and a cat all attempted to get rid of it. 
In her words, nevertheless, she persisted. It eventually got to the stage where her aunt would warn guests before going to the bathroom, watch out, the frog might be in there, and ask them kind of not to urinate on the frog. <laughs> I still feel sorry for the frog here. <laughs> I, mean, I feel sorry for the frog, but the frog had a chance to leave. Maybe the frog has a frog housing crisis. <laughs> Build more bloody ponds. Um, I like this one from Kate Wells, which is, we arrived, flat had not been cleaned, and there were human feces on the floor. And it turned out inside the Hoover. And then in the air. Oh, there's nothing worse than when you move into a new flat having just cleaned out your old flat and the new one is, I think in this case, literally a shithole. Sorry, I shouldn't swear on the podcast. I'm going to ruin our iTunes rating, aren't I? I don't think I've sworn before. Nobody's noticed. I think we got away with it. Well, that's good because Pippa writes in to tell me, and I hate, I, I hate this story. Pippa once had a hole in a wall that she could actually see out of. Big spiders used to come in through it, and the landlord ignored it. She had a hole where spiders were coming in. She had a giant spider hole in her flat. I don't, I don't mind spiders. I quite, I'm quite pro-spider. I, I don't mind them, but I don't need big ones crawling in through an empty hole in my wall. Can I tell you an embarrassing story about the hole in my mother's house? I mean, always. So, this was a while ago. Um, there was... There was a hole in the living room floor that kind of went out to the air, down to the sort of alley down the side of the house. And, like, the house had been, like, fixed up quite a lot. I said to her, why have you, why have you got the hole fixed? She said, oh, um, uh, Gary, I think it was called Gary, the builder, said, oh, no, he said that's actually quite good for the, the walls. <laughs> or the foundations, or something. Like, and, like, I mean, I'm not certain of this. Maybe I'm doing a disservice to both Gary and my mother, but I did get the distinct impression that the builder had just not really wanted to fill this hole, so it would, like, given her some story about how holes are actually good for houses. <laughs> Isn't that a plot line in the second Bridget Jones book, that the builder just knocks a hole through her wall and leaves it? It's a long time since I've read the Bridget... I used to really like the Bridget Jones books as a teenage boy. Is I that weird? I love the Bridget Jones books. I think they're yeah, very, but I was I was like a 16-year-old boy and I loved those books. I think that's, I think that's a good education in adulthood, actually, frankly. I mean, it, the, the bit about being in your mid-30s and then waking up at 5am with a terrible hangover and a lingering feeling you did something awful last night, that's, that rings true. Okay, while you're oversharing, Callum O'Dwyer tells us that he once got back from a two-week study break and the toilet was missing. And the shower. (laughs) The landlord thought I'd be away for longer and tried to replace. There was a massive leak to downstairs. As a result, the water was off for a week and I had to shower at a friend's flat. Just the surreal thing of getting into your flat and there being no toilet is is bizarre. Unrelated, but that day also got dumped and my card cancelled due to fraud, so life hits you hard. I like this one from Tim Leach. Best one was a friend who, for months, had noticed the water coming out of the kettle was cloudy. Eventually opened it up. Slug on the element. Oh, why are there so many stories of books coming into houses? Same friend had a mouse problem. Toaster was smoking and misbehaving. Eventually shakes out toaster. Charred mouse falls out. <laughs> <laughs> what I don't get is, after the slug in the kettle situation, why next time an appliance starts misbehaving would you not instantly go... I'm gonna, I'm gonna check. There's not something awful in here. I don't know, but like, I just don't think that's how the the human mind works. Like, okay, if I was to walk behind a car again on the in the hours of darkness, I don't think I would instinctively think, oh, there might be a manhole there. 
which is open and therefore I would do in my other knee. Okay, but next time you see a car parked badly and you want to passive-aggressively walk around it, I hope you will think twice. I probably won't, no. To fall down one manhole is a misfortune. This one from James Cox is part of a growing genre of um, basically people whose landlords wanted quietly to kill, I think. James Cox says his worst housing story was when the landlord scolded us for calling the gas board when the hob was leaking gas. A lot of gas. Quote the landlord, I rent out 60 flats and I've never had anyone call the gas board for a leak. You call me for this, all right? Me, sorry for being a grass on the rapidly increasing possibility that your flat would explode with me in it. The problem with tenants these days, they're just so bloody demanding, aren't they? I know. Well, why would you build any more houses if they're going to tell you if they're going to blow up? Have you noticed, by the way, that the advert we most commonly get on this podcast is is the direct line advert for landlord insurance? (laughs) This is why I don't think algorithms work very well. Either that or we have a lot of landlords who are currently picking up tips from this, in which case, you know, I apologise. It's it's a possibility. (gasps) Thomas Duran writes in to say that his mother, who he's tagged in on Twitter so she can relive the experience, (laughs) once lived in a place where the landlady wiped her arse with her hand and smeared it on the walls. Maybe the landlord had stolen the toilet. Maybe that's a more common problem than we imagine. (laughs) Oh, my God. Actually, there's another one here from Tim Leach, who I'm starting to worry about. He's the, the mouse plug guy. says, giant mushrooms growing on the floor of the living room. The same house where, if the sink was blocked, rotten food seeped up into the bath. <laughs> I'm really worrying about this guy. Richard Martin has a short play in two acts, which I'll recount for okay. you. Week one, flatmate got electrocuted doing the hoovering. No hot water. Fire exit blocked by old furniture. Radiators. Sockets had come off walls. It was above a chicken shop and stank of rotting meat from the bins at the back. Week two, moved out. I think that's the right choice. When when I did rent, for the most part, my landlords were quite nice. I got so lucky. I've had lovely... I'm actually friends with an ex-landlord of mine, which I think kind of makes me a city metric scab, but um, he's very nice. He's a folk musician. I really like him. When I first lived in a a shared house in London, I was too disorganised and didn't have internet banking, so I used to deliver... The, my rent check by hand to the agency we were renting from. I know which agency this was, and a friend of ours, actually a colleague of ours, still rents through them, and they still have tenants who come every week with their weekly housing check. Yeah. They're, just, mm. yeah. they're really nice people, and sometimes I would forget for several weeks to bring in my check, and I'd turn up always at a shame face and say, I'm sorry, the rent's late, and, and Wendy would just say, oh, it's okay, we know where you live. <laughs> I'm not. Is that reassuring or is it sinister? She was. I mean, she was. She 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 was a sort of very reassuring, sort of motherly figure. Like <laughs> Patch Thompson tells a story of having a hole in the kitchen floor. What a lot of holes in flats in these stories. When the door was shut, it meant that downstairs used to hotbox our kitchen by accident. This sounds like a fun thing, but when you're trying to make coffee and toast before a nine a.m. lecture. I've got to say, Patch, this sounds like the sort of far-fetched lie you tell your mum. Like, oh, no, that, that smells the downstairs neighbours. Nobody up here does that. Yeah. The guy who lived in the room opposite me in my first year at university used to claim that the reason his room smelt so bad was because he was right next to the toilet, which never really explained why the toilet genuinely smelt a lot, lot better than his room. Maybe the landlord was taking it out to clean it. <laughs> anyway, let's... So, so... <laughs> So this is this 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 is you. You're leaving us. 
I am leaving you. But we, I mean, we're hope, I'm hopeful that this is not the end of you on the podcast and that we will see more of you. I'm sure you will see more oh. of me through some form or another. Obviously, you can follow me on Twitter at Stephanie Boland. Follow John on Twitter at John Elledge, J-O-N-N, Elledge. We're very original with our names. I mean, we're early adopters yeah. is what we are. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go down the, uh, the Have I Got News For You route and experiment with, uh, with guest presenters for a bit, I think. And I'm going to go down the Have I Got News For You route and get splashed in the mail doing something awful. You can come in with a... You look a bit like Paul Merton. Yeah, I've had that before. Huh. Like, like, like he's one of the people, people that people have said I look like, where I think, yeah, I do actually look like him. There have also been a lot that I don't look anything like. <laughs> is one of them James May? No, James May also, to my, <laughs> to my disgust, I do look quite like. What we're realising uh, is you could have had a brilliant career in kind of Dave reruns, but instead you're... Well, that was the whole game with this podcast. But... <laughs> you see how rambly we've become because we're British people, maybe saying yeah. goodbye. Yeah. Anyway, lovely weather we're having. You'll see everyone next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.